This is the Bartender Journey Podcast. It's the Bartender Journey Podcast number 216. Thanks for listening. My name is Brian Vincent Weber. Well, last week we did an entire episode dedicated to gin, and we talked to Tristan Stevenson. We had a great conversation, but I ran out of time for my chat with Colby Frey, who is doing great work out in Nevada making spirits from ground to glass, as he says. As a farmer, I would be better off selling the farm, investing in some other investment, and not even have to work. But that's not who we are. We want to be on the farm, we're farmers, and that's where you know our love is, and that's what we want to do with our lives. So we'll talk to Colby today uh, about his gins and some of the other spirits that he's producing on his ranch out there. First, we'll do a cocktail of the week. The Pegu Club Cocktail is a great gin, gin drink. It's great for summer. According to Wikipedia, the Pegu Club Cocktail was the signature drink of Burma's Pegu Club. The club was located just outside Rangoon, and its members were uh, Britons who were senior government and military officials and prominent businessmen. The club was named after Pegu, a Burmese river, end quote. According to David Wondridge, quote, we're not sure precisely when it was invented, but it had to be invented before 1927 when it turns up in a book called Barflies and Cocktails. That book has been re-released with a foreword written by Mr. David Wondridge. And uh, yeah, we'll put that up as our book of the week. Anytime you click on an Amazon link on bartenderjourney.net to click through to Amazon, you help out the show just a little bit, whether you buy that book or something else in that sort of session. It won't cost you any extra, but you'll, be, you'll help the uh, Bartender journey podcast just a little bit so uh yeah go to bartender journey click on an amazon link and help out the show just a little bit so back to the pegu club cocktail and this is from esquire.com which is a great resource by the way for classic cocktail recipes and history and uh anytime i'm looking for a classic cocktail recipe and want to know uh, some history about it i'll just i'll just google uh the name of the recipe plus wondridge so uh and that'll bring you to esquire.com so the recipe, two ounces of a gin. We used our Frey Ranch gin. We used uh, three quarters ounce of orange curacao. I used Mandarin Napoleon. Three quarters of an ounce of freshly squeezed lime juice. One dash Angostura bitters, uh, the aromatic bitters, and one dash of orange bitters. Shake that with ice and double strain it into a chilled coupe glass with a lime wheel garnish. So, uh, yeah, there you go, the Pegu Club Cocktail. Speaking of shaking drinks, if you're in the market for a great shaker set, our friends from Mixology Talk Podcast just released a great one. And uh, the, the larger tin is weighted and the smaller one is unweighted and it makes a great combination. They fit together just perfectly and there's nothing worse than a mismatched shaker set. Uh, this one matches perfectly. So we'll have a link to that as well up on bartenderjourney.net. And if you'd like to take your bartending to the next level and get some extremely detailed training, you can do it online from anywhere in your own time, and I have a 20% discount code for you. This is the Mixology Certification Program, also from our friends Chris and Julia at Mixology Talk. And in this course, you'll go through step one, master your ingredients, understanding cocktail components. You'll talk about sourcing ingredients, sweetening ingredients, the spirits, bittering ingredients, 
garnish and uh, even egg whites. And step two, master balance and flavor. Mixology 101. And you'll talk about flavor, balance, cocktail creation, and case studies. And there's tons of videos that Chris produced about each and every one of these. And you can do this all in, in you know, in your own time and uh, take as long as you like to get through it. And then step three, earn your certificate. Take the two-part exam. So uh, step one with that is multiple choice. And then step two is a practical exam where you'll have to create an original cocktail using the technique and framework taught in this course. Yeah, I highly recommend you check this out. This is a great resource for you and uh, 20, 20% off with the discount code Bartender Journey, all one word, no space. So 20% off for you. This great course uses the code Bartender Journey. I think you'll be happy you did. There's been so much talk about sustainability in our industry lately. Our friends on the Bartender HQ podcast just did a second episode dedicated to the issue, and I highly recommend you check that out. They had a lot of great ideas for cutting down on waste uh, in your bar on their episode, which posted uh, just this last Sunday, June 11th. 2017. So please take a listen to that. I think uh, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. Tales of the Cocktail is doing a full day sustainability summit for the first time this year at Tales of the Cocktail 2017 in New Orleans. And uh, it's on the Tuesday of Tales. And I'll be sure to attend as much of that as I can and report back to you on, on um, with my findings. So uh, and if you're going to be at Tales, please consider attending the Sustainability Summit. All right, let's talk to Colby Frey from Frey Ranch Estate Distillery. Hey, thanks for having me. Great uh, great gin, man. Thank you. Yeah, I've mixed up a little martini here. So cheers, here's to you. Good, thank you. <laughs> yeah, my favorite drink is is that gin with Sam Pellegrino grapefruit. And, uh, you know, it's like a Greyhound is vodka and grapefruit juice. We've been calling those Frey Hounds. All right. <laughs> Our gin and grapefruit, it's good. <laughs> it sounds good. Nice, nice and light. Yeah. So, uh, wow. You know, tell me about your uh, your story. The the farm's been in your family for generations, right? Absolutely. So, my family began farming in Nevada in 1854. Um, keep in mind, Nevada became a state in 1864. So, we've been continually farming in Nevada for 10 years longer than it's been a state. Wow. My family, and so um, we own some of the first deeded property in Nevada. And so, we've been continually farming growing different grains and, and other crops in Nevada since, you know, since then. So that allows us to really get a good uh, grasp and really understand how to grow in the desert, which is we're in the driest state in the nation and we're farmers in the driest state in the nation, which brings its own challenges, but also it's also has its own benefits too. So it's really nice, you know. What are some of the benefits? So we're, we're kind of dry. We have a lot less humid, so we don't have molding issues. We, our crops, like grains, for example, can dry down without having to harvest them wet like they have to often in the Midwest. Um, and then sometimes we, we do things to our grains. Like by growing our own grain, we can actually grow better quality, which almost always lowers the quantity. But So by growing our, our own in the desert here, we can actually drought stress the grain a little bit which we found actually has smaller berries and those smaller berries impart more flavor or small, not berries. I'm sorry, smaller grain seed size. And those smaller seed imparts more flavors, just like a small berry on a grape cluster, you know, like a petite Syrah has a lot more flavor in the wine because it's a small berry size. Well, the smaller grains we found actually impart more flavors as well as 
we uh, uh, we don't add certain fertilizers that that might raise proteins and lower starches and and things like that where we can grow them ourselves and do a better job. But it almost always lowers the quantity, which is fine by you know by us growing them ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I've heard of that in the wine world where they uh, they kind of starve the uh, starve the grapes. I think to to get different kinds of results. But uh, interesting to hear that you're doing that with grain. I hadn't heard of that before. Yeah, especially rye. Like the the berries or the keep saying berry. I'm sorry. The grain size of rye is tiny when you drought stress it, and it really adds a lot more complexity and kind of spiciness to the to the product. All right, cool. Yeah, I bet your rye whiskey is awesome. Yeah, we're excited about it. Hundred percent rye. Giant pain to make, but it's worth it. Yeah, that's what I hear from everybody who makes 100% rye. It's, yeah. it's not easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's because, what, it's um, sort of glutinous or? Yeah, um, so there's these polymers that are inside the rye that don't allow the ox, or, sorry, CO2 to escape during fermentation. And so what happens is it actually expands in the tank and it overflows it. It's almost like the, the easiest way for me to explain it is it's almost like snot. You touch yeah. it to your finger and you go like this. And it just, you know, sticks to your finger because it's so slimy. Yeah. And what happens is we actually have to fill up each tank half full. And then a- after about a day, it rises all the way to the top of the tank, almost overflows. And then it settles back down by the time fermentation is almost done. Yeah, that's pretty wild. I, I, yeah, I recently uh, toured Dad's Hat Distillery. They're doing 100% <laughs> rye in uh, Pennsylvania. And, uh, yeah, they were telling us about that, too, how it rises up. <laughs> yeah, so we, we found that out the hard way is we filled up a tank, you know, and we thought, oh, we're going to give it an extra foot. We have 5,000-gallon fermenters, and we said, we're going to give it an extra foot because we know it's going to be foamy and, and rise. And the next morning we came, and there was a six-inch layer of snot in the entire floor of the entire distillery, you know. And uh, it's so slippery that you just fall. I mean, it's it's like like ice you know it was so well, that must we, have been we learned the hard way plugged up the floor drains and everything oh man yeah that does sound like a difficult lesson for sure yeah yeah but we're talking all about gin this week uh because uh i don't know if you heard about this world gin day but I, i'd been wanting to do an uh all gin episode anyway uh, on the podcast and uh apparently it's world gin day on saturday so it was a good cool. excuse to uh to do it Heck so yeah. uh yeah, it's good gin. And um, so you, you guys are actually producing the – it's a little unusual from what I understand when you, when you make gin to actually produce the spirit yourself. A lot, a lot of – including the big companies will ship in a neutral grain spirit and make their gin with that, right? But you're, you're doing a farmed uh, grain-to-glass gin. Absolutely, yeah. So we, we have um, – we, we call it ground-to-glass. So we have total control. We actually make the vodka or the, I mean the base. So gin, you know, basically you take a, a vodka base, a neutral base that we make ourselves right here. We distill it to 196 proof, 98% alcohol. And then we add the botanicals and, and everything, which included in those botanicals, it's kind of neat, is sagebrush. So in Nevada here, our state flower is actually sagebrush, sage. And um, then we have Rocky Mountain junipers, and so you can actually smell it on the nose—the sage. Um, and, yeah, uh, definitely. That's that floral, which, which I really like. Yeah, it's a. Um, I don't know that I would have picked out sage if you hadn't mentioned it, but when when you mentioned, it, I noticed it right away. Yeah. And the, yeah, and the ju- juniper is nice and nice and fresh. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us about the method you use to infuse the botanicals? Absolutely. So some of the botanicals, there's seven different botanicals in there. Some of them we actually put in the pot and let it soak in the, in the base uh, alcohol for 24 hours. 
And then we also have a gin basket. And so we pack the gin basket with botanicals also. So as that alcohol vapor goes through the gin basket, it, it's extracting the flavor from, from the bo- different botanicals. So, so, there's there's, so I guess it, yeah, it depends on the botanical itself, which, which method you use, right? Yeah, so. some of them we use in both just to, um, you know, in part, it, it's a little bit different when it goes through the vapor. We, we kind of experimented with both ways. And um, we found that if you do both, it, it adds to each one adds different flavors and different complexity. And so we, by doing both, you kind of add different aspects of each different botanical, um, you know, from, from each, each, uh, different extraction way. Yeah. Well, that, it makes sense that, you know, you're in one method, you're extracting it, um, with the alcohol, basically, I, I, uh, I guess you call that a, a maceration, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And then in the other way, you're passing the vapor through the botanicals, um, so it's a little more probably delicate and gentle, maybe a little more um, uh, subtle. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I suppose the um, it, with the macerations um, type, you'd want like if you're using roots and even maybe even juniper berries. I don't know, but thing, things that are harder to extract flavors from, uh-huh. where you'd want to do that in the alcohol, right? And then something exactly. softer like a you know an herb or a flower maybe or something like that, you'd want to put in the basket. Yep. And so like, like, uh, we use Angelica root. And so we put that inside the, the basket only. We don't put that, I'm, I'm sorry, inside the tank. We do that as a maceration, um, not inside the basket, but the sage, a little bit of sage goes a long way. So we put a tiny bit inside the, the tank before we, uh, you know, begin to just distillations. And we put a little bit inside the, the gin basket also, but that's what I think sets our, uh, gin apart from most others is, is that floral part of the the, the sage? Very cool. So the, you're doing a barrel age too, and yep. is that um? So is that the same uh, same recipe or different? No. So it's a different recipe. That one actually has lavender and cucumber in it, um, which are not in our other gin. It has less sage. It's less floral, and, uh, and then we put it inside new bourbon barrels, unused, un- never filled bourbon barrels for 150 days. Um, we were testing it throughout that, and we felt like. At 150 days, we felt like it, it reached its peak. We didn't want to leave it any, lo- any longer. We felt like it, it'd give too much of the oak flavor and take away too much of the gin characteristics. Yeah, so I, I feel like that's a danger with the, uh, the, you know, the bourbon casks are obviously a, um, a commodity. There's, there's a big supply of them because so much bourbon's being made, right? But then, yeah. uh, you know, there's a risk that everything starts to take like, taste like bourbon after a while. Exactly, <laughs> you know, and that's why we tequila use tequila and your, you know, all this stuff, yeah. scotch and everything's, you know. That's why we used unused bourbon barrels, which typically people age gin in, in old barrels that they already have, you know, instead of buying a new one. But we bought new barrels just to, uh, you know, we, we wanted it to be good. We didn't want to have it get that bourbon kind of flavor to it at all. So that, wow, that's really interesting that using a, a different recipe for, uh, for the barrel age. That's really cool. Yeah. And, and what's kind of neat about the barrel age gin is we only made 1200 bottles when they're gone, they're gone. We are going to have another barrel age gin. It's going to be barrel age gin number two, but the next one, the base, the alcohol base of it is actually strawberries. And so it's got strawberries, a little bit of grain and, um, but every gin barrel age gin that we make will be, you know, a little bit different, just a little bit different twist on it. So. 
That's fun. Be- I like that. You know, yeah. I guess with the with that, that's kind of a cool thing that you have as a small small guy against the big guys, where you can experiment and put out different, you know, different thing each year if you want. You know, which is which yeah. is great. You know, where you know Jack Daniels, for instance, has to taste the same today as it did hundred years ago. You know, but you know, I, I like I like the variation. You know, and I, I I would love to compare this to you know what you make what you make next time. You know, yeah, I love absolutely. That kind of thing. It almost makes it collectible too. I think you know everybody's going to want to get one of each, and, exactly. and it'll be kind of fun to to give them away to people and stuff too. Yeah. So where do you see you know barrel aged gin is still fairly. Um, I don't want to say it's new in the market, but it, yeah, <laughs> it's probably been around longer than people realize. But you're just starting to see it more and more these days. And uh, where, where do you see it? Um, how do you see it used? And you know, strictly for cocktails, or what do you? Where, what do you, Where do you see it? You know, I've seen more people with the barrel-aged gin just put it on ice, just drink it on ice in a hot, you know, now that uh, summer's, it's getting warm here. So I see a lot of my my friends and a lot of people come to the distillery and they just want a glass of ice and a little bit of barrel-aged gin and sit on the front porch in a rocking chair, you know, almost. Whereas I don't see that with normal gins, you know, typically people don't drink them on ice or, you know, they drink it more like a whiskey almost, it seems like, because of maybe the oakiness than a gin, but it still makes a really good gin and tonic. Um, it's really good also with the, the San Pellegrino grapefruit, but, um, you know, it just doesn't taste the same. So it's a little bit, it's just a little twist. It's almost, you know, that, that oakiness really, um, changes the whole game of the gin. Right. And, uh, yeah, it'd be fun to play around with this and, and with different, you know, with, in a cocktail, you can come up with something really unique with this. Yeah. So that, that's one that too, we had a lot of the, the Las Vegas bartenders and the bartender guild here in Reno and everywhere um, come out. And that's one that they really thought that they could have fun with and, you know, make some interesting, unique drinks with that. Oh, that's cool. Glad to hear you had the uh, USBG app. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're really good. Uh, yeah, I belong to the New York City chapter, and uh, that was I mentioned that our trip to Dad's Hat. That was a trip that we did with USBG as well. Oh, so uh, that's neat. Yeah, we had we we had a great time, and we just it's just so cool to meet the guys that are actually making this stuff. You know, it's really Absolutely. really cool. Well, that's what I love having people come out here because you can show them what it takes. You know, to to actually get something in the bottle, especially when we can walk around the fields. You know, and you can see the the corn and the wheat and the rye, the barley all growing right in the field. And we can show them where we store it, where we mill it, you know, and the best thing about like our whole situation is my wife tells everybody that when you take a bottle home, it's never left our possession until you take it home. You know what I mean? The ingredients in that have been a hundred percent under our control. That's awesome. So we even, we malt our own barley. Um, Wow. we do everything right here ourselves. Wow, I hear that's quite a job too, and a lot of people outsource oh. that, right? Yeah, and so we, we malt our own. We, we actually had to design and build our own malting drum. So there's a, a company here in Fallon, right where we're from, and they helped us build the drum. So it's a, it holds one ton at a time, and it creates the ideal germinating conditions, you know, and it has a separate steep tank where we can soak and, and get, the, get the moisture absorbed into the grain. And so it's kind of neat, though, that to see the grain that you grew, you know, going through the malting process, then going through the fermentation process and the distillation process. And now we're aging uh, quite a bit of whiskey too. I know we're on, we're talking about gin, but we have 1,160 whiskey barrels filled up already, full size 53 gallon whiskey barrels. And we still have two more seasons of production before we'll release any. We want to wait a minimum of four years before we release anything. And the oldest 
whiskey right now is two and a half years old. So we've got about a year and a half left. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Four, four years is uh, kind of considered a bit of a sweet spot when it comes to bourbon, right? Yeah. We just, we don't want to ruin our reputation to try to rush a product to the market. You know, I think that's the biggest problem that a lot of distilleries do is they might rush a product to the market to try to recoup some of their costs but it might tarnish their name a little bit because the whiskey's not quite aged or it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just not mature enough to, to, to be out yet, you know? Right. But the gin's pretty quick to produce, right? Yeah, that's the best. So we got gin and a vodka and we also have a, an absinthe, um, and a brandy. Oh, cool. Right now. Yeah. yeah. And I read somewhere you had a, uh, your vodka's uh, four grain vodka. That's, yep. that's unusual. So it's four grain vodka. It actually has the same mash bill as our bourbon. And so we kind of played around. We know that vodka is, is neutral, but we thought, why not make it with the same mash bill as our bourbon where we played around with different recipes and that's what tastes the best when you actually have some of the flavor left in, the, in the, that mash bill, for example, you know, the grains, the, the different recipe. So why not make it with the same recipe as the bourbon? You know, even though you're, you're distilling out all of the flavor, we still might as well start off with something that tastes good. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's distilled to a very high proof, and you, you, you do lose a lot of the uh, character of the original grain, but not, not all. Not all, right? Yeah, yeah different, different grains kind of impart a little bit of different flavor, even when you distill them to high proof. So having a little variety adds a little bit of complexity to it so that it's not, you know, just your standard kind of plain vodka that, you know, maybe was made out of one kind of grain. It sure would be easy just to have one one grain in the mash bill so you're not having to weigh them separate and mill them separate and doing all the work separate but we like to we like to add uh you know complexity you know or not complexity but we like to add work for ourselves <laughs> exactly how many people do you have working with you so right now we have nine people that are full-time and then we have several seasonal guys that come in and help us when we're you know when we're busy but the nicest part about our distillery is, is we're capable of producing 10,000 cases a month, 120,000 bottles a month when we're at full production. But the whole idea is, is that we can shut down for the summer and all of the people that work for me go out, work in the farm, you know, and we concentrate on farming. We're not distracted by the distillery while we're growing the grains. And in the winter, we fire up the distillery and we're concentrate on the distillery. We're not distracted by the farming. So it's kind of neat because right now the distillery shut down. We're not producing anything, you know, in these summer months because we're growing the grains. But it's kind of neat because the same employees that are helping me distill in the distillery are also out growing the grains. And they can see what it takes to do both sides, which makes them a lot more well-rounded when they're, you know, on the farm. They understand why they're doing certain things, you know, in the farm for the distillery and then vice versa. So it, it really helps us. And then a lot of farms have to let their employees go over the, the winter because there's nothing to do. Sure. And I'm able to utilize those employees year round and, and not, you know, not have to lay them off and, and keep them busy by bringing them into the distillery for the winter. So that's really cool. That's, that's really amazing, man. That's uh and yeah, efficiency sounds like, and yeah, Absolutely. like you say, during, if all you're doing is farming, there's nothing to do in the winter. So that's, yep. that's great. And 
You know, and if you think we've been talking a lot about uh, sustainability in bars lately, and uh, you know, trying to be environmentally friendly in the bars and things, and try to reduce waste and all this. But and, and if you think about it, you're doing everything right there, so you're you're being efficient. Uh, you're being good to the environment by not ship, you know, shipping the grain. The, you're not buying the grain from somebody who's you know 500 miles away, so that's got to be trucked over, and then it's got to go in containers and this and you know. So there's a lot of waste involved, which you're concentrating everything together in one place. Absolutely. And that's what's really neat, too, about our, our situation is there's a dairy right next door to us and they buy all of our spent grains. Um, we have a separator. We separate out the solids and the liquids. So the solids all go and they get fed to the dairy cows. It's, it's literally next door bordering our property. Um, we own the property right up to them. It's a dirt road. So we take it with our, you know, our, our loader backhoe. We take it in these big bins and it's really economical. And so they get it fed to cows. So there's no waste there. Then the liquid is very acidic. And our ground here is very alkaline. And so what we do is we pump the liquid into our irrigation system, and that goes on the crap crops, and it helps balance our pH. So, so, so you're talking like, about the liquid that's left over after, um, after fermentation? After fermentation or distillation. You know, we, we actually do a, um, a grain-in distillation. So after the distillation's done, we separate the solids and the liquids. It's almost like a, a porridge-type material. You know what I mean? It's still got the solids in it. And so then after that, we separate the solids out and feed them to the cows. The liquid goes into our irrigation system, and, and it, it just really helps balance the pH to grow the next crop. Now, if we were in a city, it's too acidic to just dump down the, the city municipal drain, drain system, you know. So what they typically have to do is they actually have to add 10 to 20 parts water to dump it down the drain. Whoa. So now you're wasting a bunch of water and you're, you know, it, it's, it's very, it's non, um, you know, environmentally friendly, but we're able to actually benefit from those, those liquids, you know, and then this is, this is kind of a part that, that some people think is amazing and some people don't, but the dairy, oh, I think that's door, amazing. Per, well, th- this part is the dairy next door produces, has a lot of manure. So we take that manure, we spread it on the field. It's the best fertilizer there is. And so we spread that on the field to grow the next crop. So it's almost like a circle because we're growing this crop, we're getting a product, a, a spirit off of it, we're selling the byproduct to the dairy next door, they feed it to cows, they make manure, which is fertilizer, to put back on the field to grow the next crop. So we have to use very few commercial fertilizers, if any, um, and we're able to utilize, we don't have to buy soil amendments as much because of the, the acidic liquid that we're putting on the, the crops and everything else. So it's almost like our own little circle here that's all within a a couple mile radius, you know, our, our farm is 1400 acres. We farm about 2,500 acres total. We lease neighboring farms and, and other places, you know, and so we're able to utilize, um, you know, in the best manner we can, which is what farmers typically do. You know, we're just kind of uh, stewards of the land. We're trying to leave it in a better condition for our future generations, which I'm fortunate for because that's what my dad did and his dad did and his dad did in the past. So, um, yeah, well, yeah, that's that's, how, that's how farming's supposed to work, you know, and and uh, did years ago when yeah. when there was really no other choice, you know, you didn't have the yeah. choice of shipping in a commercial fertilizer from you know <laughs> a big manufacturer from or whatever, you know, you had to yeah. do with you had to do with what you had, but it's it was actually a a good system, you know, good good for the earth and and uh, economically makes makes some sense too. Yeah, yeah. So that's and that's what's neat is and there's there's some farmers that maybe just take from the soil or take from the ground, you know, and, and we don't want to do that. So we're, you know, like I said, we're we're adding back, we're trying to do what's best for, you know, the environment, what's best for the farm, 
and you know future generations and everything else so um you know not not adding and like you said not not shipping in grains from across the country you know grains a commodity so it goes up and down like a stock almost the price you know and and so if we were to ship in grain you could bet that the farmer did whatever it takes to get the biggest yield not necessarily the best quality you know what i mean sure because they're gonna you know it's a kind of a set price it goes up and down so by us growing it ourselves we can ensure that we're growing the best quality and we can sacrifice quantity for that quality and which we do on a on a you know every year we do that in the field and and um we've had several um whiskey writers and judges and people like that come out and taste the whiskey and they say i can taste the grains i can tell you guys are farmers this is you know it shows extreme potential and so we're really excited about that but um you know showing them the whole farm and showing them the the actual fields and and saying look right over there is where the whiskey next year is coming from you know and kind of neat to to be part of that so so uh yeah i, I heard this story one or two other times of you know farms that have been in families for many years and you know f- making a living off of farming these days is not not real easy so uh but it's it's great that you're able to uh to to find a way to make it work and and uh use the land to make some some great great spirits that's really cool yeah thank you yeah we're going to be vertically integrated you know and that's that's kind of what we're trying to do is that as a farmer, I would be better off selling the farm, investing in some other investment. I could probably make five times more money and not even have to work. But yeah. that's not who we are. Right. We, you know, we we we're we want to be on the farm. We're farmers, and and that's where you know our love, it, you know, is, and that's what we want to do with our lives. And so, um, you know, financially as a business person, it doesn't make much sense. So what we're trying to do is create another crop or source of income, which is the distillery, to vertically integrate to help justify, you know, land costs and payments and equipment costs and things like that, you know, and and to just sell it on the open market, there's very little, if any, money on it. You're lucky most years just to break even. And so we needed to do something that that generated more income and, and utilize the crops that were growing. So um, we also have a little vineyard and we, we grow grapes and, and have a little winery that we started. We planted our first vines in 2001 and, and uh, started making commercial wines in 2006. Okay. And that's about when we started distilling also. Um, in, in 2005, we were making wine saying, and all these grains, we're also harvesting grain at the same time. And they're all just going to the dairy next door, getting fed to cows. And we're sitting there saying, why aren't we making something out of those, you know? So uh, that's when we started. We got we uh, we got our experimental distilling license in 2006, so we could start you know experimenting with it, figuring out our recipes, knowing what we wanted to do, you know, and and uh, designing stills and things like that. And then in 2011, there was no laws in the state of Nevada to allow the production of or sales of spirits, you know. So we were legally making it, but we just couldn't. We couldn't sell it. We couldn't taste it. We, were, you know, we weren't supposed to do anything with it. So in 2011, they enacted laws um, from in the state of Nevada that that allowed us for the production and sales of, of craft spirits. So after that, that's when we built a new distillery and and ordered and started the large production part of the distillery. That's great. That so, so many of the states are are um, 
realizing that this is an important, you know, I probably tax revenue, but you know, they're, they're realizing yeah. that it's, you know, it's great for, uh, for farmers and it's great. For, there's a, there's a lot of laws that just came in effect in New York over the last few years as well that to, to encourage craft distilleries and, um, and to help them out, you know, and it's really good to see I, the, uh, experimental license is a term I hadn't heard before. I don't know if, yeah. I don't know if that's specific to, uh, Nevada or not, but, uh, no, so that was a federal experimental license. Oh, and, it was federal, okay. And, yeah, so it's kind of neat. They just, same thing, they, they allow for the um, production, the aging, everything. You just can't sell it commercially or anything, you know, anything along those lines. So. And then, so are you, so are you allowed to um, self-distribute in your state? No, so we have a three-tiered system in, in Nevada here, and, but we are allowed to sell to the consumer um, limited quantities. I, I think we're allowed to sell 12 bottles per person per month in the tasting room here okay so it's nice that we're able to to sell a little bit here and, and actually um, get people excited about it you know and let people taste it and everything else yeah here in new york if you produce under a certain amount i don't know i couldn't even tell you what the number is a certain amount of cases per year um you're allowed to self-distribute that's neat but uh so you know you'll see some guys driving around in their cars and you know, going around to bars and selling their own product, you know, but a lot of them want distributors because, you know, they have the network and the, yeah. uh, and the sales force. I think even if we could self-distribute, I'd still like to have a distributor just because I, I can't drop everything and deliver one case of spirits to. You got you enough know, on your, fl- on your plate. Hours away. Yeah. <laughs> Between uh, farming the uh, land and uh, harvesting and making that all those spirits. That's yeah. you got a lot. You got a lot going on, my friend. <laughs> yeah. That, and that's the biggest problem is I see these other, like you mentioned that a lot of distilleries just buy gin already made, you know, and, and so. Or the, well, they'll buy neutral spirit and then. Neutral maybe, spirits. Yeah. yeah. Make gin or, or, you know, not grow the crops and everything else. Yeah. Well, that leaves a lot of free time for marketing and everything else. Yeah. Right. Whereas we're busy growing the crops, <laughs> making the spirit, the base, and then making the spirit and. And then we, we, you know, are also in charge of sales and marketing and everything else, but sure. um, it adds a lot more complexity. There's several distilleries that they just buy neutral grain spirits and bottle that as a vodka and, and don't, don't really make anything. They call up and say, I want a thousand cases of X delivered here. And then they they have all the, all the time in the world to go out and market their own product. And yep. so that's our only, that's the biggest downfall with what we do is that it, it doesn't leave us a lot of free time. Yeah. It's worth it though. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Very cool. Well, Kobe, this was uh, great to meet you, and uh, uh, cheers. Here's to you, man. Thank you. Doing, it, it, doing great stuff there. Yeah, and you're always welcome here. I'd love to see you down I'd here. I know it's a long on. ways from New York, but yeah. Uh, yeah. flying yeah. arena will show you a good time if you're ever, ever Yeah, I'd love to. Maybe, uh, maybe if I get to the nightclub and bar show again one time in Vegas, I'll have to make a pit stop on the way. Absolutely, yeah. We'd love to show you around. I won't make it worth your while. Love to. Well, cheers. Thanks so much. Great conversation, and uh, we'll be in touch. All right. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye, Goby. Bye. Stand by for our toast. We have a toast every week at the very end of the show. Hey, check out our Tip Cup page. So it's Bartender Journey slash Tip Cup. And if you'd like to help keep uh, the show going, support this show, and make sure uh, we keep putting out great episodes, great content for you. We'd love your support on our Tip Cup page. You can make a one-time donation to the show or or even set up a small donation monthly. That would be amazing. I could really use your help keeping this show going. 
We want to thank Acela for, for the kind words and the five-star review and on Apple Podcasts. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And anybody who would love to, anybody who would give it a review, it would, uh, yeah, it's really great to, uh, to hear what you have to say about the show. And your encouragement is always welcome. So Acela is an enthusiast and considering making a move to hospitality. This is something I've heard from several listeners. And uh, my advice is always the same. That's so awesome. Congratulations. But take it slow. And uh, the cool thing about the hospi- hospitality industry is you can you know, do it on the weekends and maybe make that transition slowly. Yeah, keep your day job for now, but get a, um, you know, a bar back job on the weekends or something, you know, one or two days a week on the weekend. Make sure you like it. Make sure you like it enough to give up your weekends <laughs> and you can, uh, you know, work just a couple days a week at first and make that tra- transition slowly. Here's our toast. To the holidays, all 365 of them. Cheers. We'll see you next time on the Bartender Journey Podcast. With modern radio sending and receiving equipment, it is possible to establish communication instantaneously from any place at any time.